Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. We join together this morning to worship our King and to hear from His Word. We are not left alone here. We have the Spirit of God in His people to comfort our hearts and also to apply the Word of God to us. And that's what we turn to now as we open up the Word together. So let's go ahead and take a look at Ephesians chapter 3 and consider that this is not just an exercise in reading and talking about old books. I want you to recognize that what we're doing here together is hearing from the Lord of the universe. We are hearing the word of God to us. Uh, We recognize this as we come with great respect and awe to hear from our, our brother and apostle Paul as he has received the revelation of God for us. So let's read the first 13 verses of chapter 3 and then we'll pray. Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been made revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come to hear from you today. Teach us your word today that we might understand and live in light of the truths that you have revealed. It is your gracious act to do so. Change us by your Holy Spirit's power. May we believe the gospel. May we tell others the gospel. May we be convicted of our sin. May we love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. May we love our neighbor as ourselves. And would you build us up in Christ for the sake of your fame throughout all the earth and all the heavens. We pray your blessing on the word preached this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'll start with this. Uh, Why are you here or what are you doing here this morning? Uh, Maybe more broadly, step back a little bit, kind of in the everyday. um, What are you doing living out your life as a Christian in a non-Christian world? 
I mean, when you think about it around us, uh, the world thinks about us as a religion, as a group that sits and kind of props themselves up against a philosophy of life, uh, about a religious practices and rules and following a certain number of things uh, that they don't necessarily see as legit. Sometimes you and I can think that we're participating in uh, some sort of small, insignificant, countercultural movement that we call the church, as though it's real to us, but it's probably at best to the rest of the world, something that the history calls, again, a crutch, philosophy, religion, something like that. But the problem is that's not how the Bible talks about our existence and the existence of the whole world. That's not what's going on here. Not only is this gathering a real-life expression and representation of the body of Christ, the new humanity, made up of humans before God, but get this, it is also one part of the theater of salvation into which angels long to look and do look. What I am saying is that the Bible tells us that angels look at the very existence of the church, the body of Christ made up of Jews and Gentiles who find their identity together wrapped up in Jesus Christ alone, and they stand in awe and wonder at the profound wisdom of God. Our existence as the church has many working pieces, and of course some exciting benefits but this morning here in this, in this chapter, I want us to see that what God is doing is bigger than just these exciting benefits. In these verses, we see that God, having accomplished the work of reconciliation between God and man, and therefore between man and man, we talked about this reconciliation, we see that he is displaying his profound wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. One day, we will see cosmic reconciliation of all things, a uniting of all things together in Christ. We learn this, if you remember, from chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. You can look back there, it's fine. Paul said this in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We are a type of revealer to the heavenly beings. We, the church, are experiencing the mystery revealed to us. We're experiencing something that proclaims and demonstrates the wisdom of God and his plan to unite all things in heaven and things on earth. We know that he did this by making Jews and Gentiles one people in Christ Jesus. So, as we walk about our existence and we talk about it as a church, our existence in Christ as the true body, we aren't talking about a group of people who are united by a philosophy or a way to think or a few rules that we all tolerate and go with. We are actually, if we are united to Christ by faith, we are actually now unified with one another in sweet, true, real fellowship not because we actually like one another, but rather because we are connected to Jesus Christ. And that unity with him gives us unity with one another. Our text this morning is just verses 8 through 13. It's the second half of Paul's description of himself as a prisoner of Christ. In these verses, we are going to see that God has given grace to Paul to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, 
and to enlighten everyone about the mystery that God so much wants to show and does show through the church so that God might now make known the wisdom of God to the heavenly rulers and authorities. Paul has been given an immense responsibility. We talked about this last week, this stewardship, this administration, this work has been given to him. He has received by revelation the mystery of Christ, the gospel that has saved him and has good news for the world. He talked about it a little last week, though. Remember that Paul didn't come to this message, uh, this revelation, through prayer and fasting or through his immense amount of study or even being one who was looking for the Messiah and found him out. No, it was revealed to him by force. Think up in Acts 9, right? God knocked him to the ground to proclaim to him the truth of Jesus Christ. And God uses Paul for his own purposes, not Paul's purposes. And in doing so, for us as we look at this, there is no doubt that he is showing to us that this is a gift of grace, not earned. But this mystery is one of grace. Look at verse 8. He says this, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. He's not using uh, hyperbole only. He is making much out of his state before Jesus Christ. Think about who he was. He's pointing out his own persecution against the church. Imprisonment, killing, harming, persecuting over and over and that he has no business receiving the revelation of God. There's like no question for us. The very least of the saints have been given the task to receive the revelation and give the revelation that the Gentiles will be one in Jesus Christ with the Jews. Remember 1 Corinthians 15.9. Paul says this, For I am the least of the apostles. Sound familiar? Listen. Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Paul is making it thoroughly clear that the message, the task, the, the, the messenger, even himself, is a gift from God. It's all of God's grace and none of Paul's goodness and work and, and ethic bringing up all this stuff. Now what Paul does here, he has, he has two main tasks, but uh, their result in the grace of God moving forward in three different groups. If you take a look there, you're going to see first, we'll see that it means preaching to the Gentiles. And then second, we'll see that it brings light to everyone about the mystery. And then third, we'll see that he's making known God's wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Let's go ahead and start with the Gentiles, though, here. Paul is made an apostle to the Gentiles, sent to, by Jesus to be a missionary to those who we learned before are far off. They do not have the oracles of God. They are Gentiles. They are the nations. Look at verse 8. He says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, not to preach the incredible opportunity to join Israel. No, it's not what he says. They could have done that before, proselytization. They could have come in, obeyed the laws, gotten circumcised, followed everything. They could have done it before. That's not what he says here. What he says to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He's making much of Jesus. This is the historical account of Jesus of Nazareth, the one born of the Virgin Mary, the one who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, the one who lived a perfect life, who fulfilled the law, 
who died as a sacrificial lamb for his people in our place to reconcile us to God. Just for a minute, if you're here this morning and you don't know what I'm talking about, this is the gospel. There's, there's four helpful things to remember about the gospel. One is the perfect and holy and righteous creator God who has made all things right and well and good. But there's a second thing. It's you and me. It's all of humanity who has rejected his kingship, who hate him, who rebels, or what we kind of think of as indifference. But rather, the Bible shows us that it's hatred and rejection of God and who he is. This, though, brings the wrath of God upon us who hated God. But there's a third point. God knew this, and it was his plan from the foundation of the world to give Jesus Christ the one who could stay in our place and receive the wrath of God, our penalty that we so much deserve. This leads to the last thing, though. It doesn't mean that everyone's saved, but rather those who understand this truth and trust Jesus Christ by faith. This is the message of the gospel. This is what Paul was preaching to the Gentiles, to us that we know as so dear and precious and sweet. This is the message that Paul gave to the Gentiles, the message of the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. And that that word unsearchable is a really good translation. But all scholars agree, it's just not enough. Uh, One guy I saw, that he he listed out six different words to try to explain this Greek word. Paul is talking about infinite, unsearchable, inexhaustible, immeasurable, all these lists of adjectives go on and on the depths of the riches of Jesus Christ. Not only is Jesus Christ the deepest will, well from which we will ever be able to drink, but Paul is telling us no matter how much humanity goes after Christ, they will never, ever be able to exhaust their understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Christ who is offered then to the Gentiles, that they might believe and be reconciled to God and we know later, to one another. For a moment, though, I, I just want to point out that this message, the gospel, is not Paul's duty to give out alone. Consider this for a moment. The gospel that you and I know, most of you can just tell me back what I just told you already. You know it because you believe the truth and are thankful for Jesus Christ who has saved your soul. But think about the zeal with which Paul gave and had for those who did not know. Brothers and sisters, isn't it right that we would also therefore take this message, this wonderful good news that we can have reconciliation with God to others? If it's true, and if it's actually as unsearchably rich as he talks about, we must give it away. We must be sounding boards, regular proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this ought to be a regular thing for us. It's not just for me on Sunday morning to stand up here and proclaim it to the open air. It's for each of us day after day to proclaim to one another, to our children, to our co-workers, to our extended families, to our neighbors. We are, and we know this to be true, the light of the world. I would call us, therefore, to have the same zeal that Paul has and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the wonderful message of reconciliation with God because of Jesus. Now, we know, though, it's not only a message of reconciliation between God and man. 
It's also a message between, of reconciliation because of that between man and man. Look at verse 9. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. Now, we already talked about what the mystery is, that Jew and Gentile now are made one in Jesus Christ. Paul is set to the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. But in doing so, he is also doing something else. He is bringing light to all people about this mystery that has been hidden for ages in the past in God up to this point. Paul knew something about being enlightened, right? If you go back and think about Acts 9 again, remember what got him on the ground? A bright light shining from heaven. Not only was he enlightened in his heart and mind, he was literally knocked off, whether he's, whether he's walking or whether he's on a horse or something like that. He is knocked to the ground by the light from heaven. Paul was bringing to light everyone, Jew and Gentiles, enlightening all of them concerning this mystery. It was hidden in God from eternity past, even before creation. Look at the wording here. To bring to light for everyone was the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God, who created all things. This mystery was unknown before this time. They had no idea that Jews and Gentiles would be co-heirs, co-body members, co-shares in the promise, all wrapped up, not in the nation of Israel, but in the person of Jesus Christ through faith in him, through the gospel. They had no idea this was going to happen. And here we see this was the mystery that was hidden from eternity past in God of creation. And we'll see here in just a minute that this is the eternal purpose of God coming true. But for now, let's go ahead and continue on here as Paul brings to light everyone and what's going on through this mystery. Paul is saying, that as he preaches the gospel to these Gentiles, and therefore the Gentiles believe, and therefore they are joined to Christ, and now they are joined to his church, the mystery is being revealed to everyone. As Gentiles become Christians, and as Paul supports this phenomenon with his teaching, saying, yeah, these guys, they're legit. They're actually in the kingdom because of Jesus Christ. As he's doing that, the Jewish Christians have the mystery revealed to them in a living picture as they see Gentiles who now look to God and understand because of Jesus Christ that they can have reconciliation and forgiveness of sins. Wow, it blows them away. This is the job of the apostle, to preach good news to the Gentiles and then correspondingly to bring light to everyone that the Gentiles, uh, that the Gentiles salvation in Christ is God's gracious plan now to make one humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. So these two wonderful things, I mean, if you think about this, this is enough for me. I could stop here. But it's not enough. It's incredible, right? Like, wow, this is crazy that Gentiles now can know Christ. They can know God and have reconciliation. Oh, even greater than that, that there can be an enlightenment for everyone. We understand the mystery of Christ is that Jew and Gentile are now one in Jesus Christ, and there's a new humanity. This is awesome. But this is not enough for God. Look what he does next. He's doing more than what we can just see or experience. In verse 10, something is happening that you and I cannot see, and we have no idea what it looks like, except we believe it's true because he tells us. In verse 10, Paul says, God is doing all this so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
He tells us that preaching the gospel to Gentiles and bringing to light everyone about the, the mystery of God has a very specific purpose. Is it to save them? Absolutely. Is it to make one new man? Absolutely. But look what he says here. Real quick, if you and I were just reading along, I think this is what I would do. I'll just, maybe I'll just put myself in that category. When I'm reading along, I'm thinking, okay, yes, there must be a bigger purpose. That's great. Now he's going to take that and he's going to kind of proclaim it to the whole world, right? That's, that's great. To the rulers and authority, and I'm thinking throughout the world. But that's not what he says. It's far bigger than this. Paul says the purpose is to make the wisdom of God known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Places we can't see. He's not talking about the sun, moon, and stars around. He's talking about angels and demons. He is talking about something way bigger than us. The realm of the unknown. Orders of high and low-ranking angels who submit to God's authority. And those, of course, who have rebelled against him as well. We've already seen these rulers and authorities, principalities and powers throughout the book already, seeing that they are at war. We see all throughout the writings of Paul that they are trying to blind the eyes of those who would actually believe the gospel. Think of 1 Peter 1.12, right? You know this part. Peter's talking about salvation when Christ will come, and he says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from him heaven. Here we go. Listen to this part. We already know all that. Things into which angels long to look. And now they look with astonishment and amazement at what God has done. They look on and see the plan of God unfolding before their very eyes. They see that God's victory and his unification of all things has begun and is steadily moving toward full consummation, the ultimate final end of Jesus Christ putting every one of his enemies to death, to putting them down and to be over top of all and unifying all things in himself. And notice how God is doing it. Paul says that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be now be made known. Now, he doesn't say that it's when the church gathers together or when the church evangelizes or when the church sings together or when the church, go on, more, when, when the church does something. It is the very existence of the church that proclaims this truth to the heavenly beings. It blows their minds. It's the very nature of each of us being reconciled to God and therefore being reconciled to one another through Christ, that the angels stand gawking. They are amazed at this truth. No one else could have ever conceived of such a plan, a wondrous plan. I mean, no one had any idea that this is what God was going to choose to do. The emphasis here is not on what we do as being the church. Man, are we so proud of what? Are we not arrogant? that we think somehow that we're so good that we finally show. No, no, no. This is God making known through the existence of the church, forming it, making this a reality that he shows to the heavenly beings his wisdom. The mystery is revealed, and it, this mystery revealed makes known the manifold wisdom of God. Now, this word, manifold wisdom of God, it's an important word. Paul is saying that this wisdom is not like the wisdom of man. 
It's not like with a whole lifetime, thousands of years, all the philosophies, that's all one-dimensional wisdom. He's not talking about that. When they look at what God is doing, it's not even three-dimensional. It's bigger than that. The idea of this manifold wisdom of God is the idea of a tapestry. And if you understand what I mean, it's many different threads, different colors, different materials, different textures that are woven together to bring together something so beautiful that there's no way it's done by one, but a manifold of different things. This is the idea that he uses. It's almost like the, the idea of a bouquet of flowers that works together all the pieces and textures and types and smells and colors, and you see something, that one thing is absolutely beautiful and astounding. This is how he talks about the manifold wisdom of God. This is complex and beautiful, this tapestry that's been woven together, so that the angels and the demons stand back and marvel at who God is. I mean, you think that you and I think the gospel is cool? I mean, can you imagine an angel with his mouth, jaw dropped? Amazing. He's watching this happen in front of him. He's seeing Jew and Gentile now by faith in Christ alone, union that they now have reconciliation with God and with one another. And the work God has done to make us one together in Christ is something wonderful that proves to the heavenly beings that God is profoundly wise. Consider that the, the wicked angels who were watching this, right, as they try and try and try to thwart God's plans, have always known that God has worked through the promises of Abraham. They're no dummies, but they're not omniscient. They know that he works through the promises of Abraham, through the nation of Israel, who's received the promises and the covenants and the laws. But now, all of a sudden when they watch this, they realize they no longer are concerned only about the truth inside of Israel, the nation. Their realm of concern just exploded to every square inch of the globe because now it is through Jesus Christ and Christ alone that all peoples, all tribes, all kindreds and nations can know and have reconciliation with God. They're freaking out. I can't believe this. There's no way we can cover the whole globe somehow. They're going crazy. How in the world are we going to do this thing? Consider the manifold wisdom of this God. No longer could they just work to stop Israel from preaching the gospel outside them. Now Christ's finished work was offered to every person, Jew and Gentile, without having to become a Jew. This is terrible news for the demons. This is wonder and excitement for God's holy angels. I mean, can you imagine an angel who knows way more than you and I know about? We've been alive for way longer than me and you have. They know all about God and what he's really doing behind the veil that we don't see. And he sits there and learns for the first time that God is doing this work through Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the worship that must have ensued at this moment? And we see these things coming true. This God is a God of incredible, indescribable wisdom, infinite wisdom, manifold wisdom. There is no one like him. The principalities and the powers, or you can say here, the rulers and authorities in heaven now see that their power is forever trumped by the risen, seated authority who sits by the throne of God. Jesus Christ himself, Ephesians 1.21, says this, For far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, they're in trouble. Jesus Christ now sits as the supreme ruler over all things. 
And Paul doesn't stop here, but rather gives us an assurance that this is not some kind of cleanup after a mistake of sin or a, an improvisation, like he's doing improv, like, oh, something happened, i got to figure out, oh, I'll send Jesus, that'll be good. No, he says rather that this mystery was according to his plan. His eternal purpose. Think Ephesians 1.11. We already just talked about this a, little, a few weeks ago. Verse 11 says this here, though. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. This has always been his plan. It's not a backup plan. It's not a mistake. It's not improv. God has finally now made known his wisdom, manifold wisdom, to the heavenly beings. And now we see the rest of his will continually unfolding in front of us. And how does this plan get accomplished? Well, it's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Notice here that it isn't just in Christ Jesus. It's important. This title, our Lord, is extremely important. It personalizes it and it makes it very kingly. He is pointing out that this isn't going to happen. Um, it already is happening. It's not something that might be realized someday, hopefully, but rather as Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, it is in process. Jesus, our Lord, is on the throne. He is over all rulers and authorities, having accomplished his work on the cross and taken the seat next to his Father. We recognize that not all things are consummated, completed. We're still here. Evil still exists. We know this to be true. But the death blow has been dealt to Satan and all of his wicked demons. We recognize that Jesus Christ now sits at the right hand of the Father, waiting. I don't know how long. I'm not a prophet here to tell you exactly what's going to happen. But I can tell you this. He will bring all things together in Christ Jesus for his glory one day. It will be glorious. And our hope is sure. We look forward to that day. But not only does this give us great hope, it also gives us complete boldness to act as sons and daughters of the king. No, I mean, to no longer act as those who are far away, but those rather who have been brought near in Christ. Look at verse 12. In whom, he's talking about in him, Jesus Christ, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Our salvation from the wrath of God and our unification with our Jewish brothers and sisters as part of the growing holy temple of God's glorious dwelling all turns on one person, on Jesus Christ alone. It is because of his finished work and his continued work before the Father that we have any right to come before him. And it is in him alone that we have boldness and access. Think about that idea, access. Our access to God and our boldness to speak to him is based solely on the finished work of Christ, the continuing work of him. I'm not putting that part in there either, like that that's just my idea about this. He says it both at the very beginning of the verse, but I want you to notice the last phrase of the verse as well. In your ESV translation, if you got it in front of you, you're going to see it says, through our faith in him. This is true theologically. It's a great statement, through our faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, but it's not what Paul wrote in Greek. Let me give you the exact wording here that you'll understand what I mean. It's a little bit clunky, but you'll understand here. He says, through the faith of him. Through the faith of him, referring to Christ. Now, this could mean through our faith in him. The word our is not there. It's supplied. It's a legitimate translation, but there could be another more valuable and a convincing translation of these words. Most importantly, to cut to it today, it takes the sounds through the faith of him 
and in meaning the faith or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Does this not match up with what we already know to be true about all of the things that we rely on anyway? That God, through Jesus Christ and his faithfulness, has made it possible for us to know God. So now here's the verse again with this in mind, so you can see Paul's point. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through the faithfulness of Christ. Paul isn't giving us new information, but securing our boldness and our access to the rock who has faithfully completed his work and stands faithfully before God as our high priest. Think Old Testament. Think about access to God. Our access is not like the access of the Old Testament where their saints had to kill thousands of animals over a lifetime to gain access to God's throne rightly. Our access is not like that. Our access is grounded in the finished work of the one true lamb, Jesus Christ. I mean, what a confidence that we now have in him. What a sure and steady foundation for us to pray and speak and plead with this God based on the finished work and intercession of Jesus Christ. These last two verses, 11 and 12, are an enormous encouragement to you and me and they give us thoughts of application and support us and how we consider our, our, as being part of the body of Christ. But they're not necessarily the main point of this passage. So let me go back, and if you just look up for a minute and think about this through, I'm going to summarize verses 8 through 12 for you. It's like this. God has given grace to Paul to preach the gospel to Gentiles and to enlighten everyone about the mystery so that God might now make known the mystery, the wisdom of God to the heavenly rulers. That's the idea. He's given this gracious thing to Paul, revealed it to him so that he could preach and enlighten for the matter unshowing so that the heavenly beings might see the wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God. But you'll notice that he has one more verse before he starts his prayer in verse 14, right? Look at verse 13. Let's read it. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Remember how Paul started this whole thing out. Look at chapter 3, the first verse, in verse 1. He said, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. What he's doing is kind of bringing us back to the description of himself. We're seeing that this whole thing is setting up who he is, the person who's going to pray. He's trying to show that he is safe in the plan and eternal purpose of God despite his suffering and imprisonment. He is coming to the place to say, don't worry, it's okay. I know I'm behind bars, but this isn't outside the plan of God. It's not outside of the plan of your glory as well, being able to share in this truth. He's bringing his description of himself to conclusion. He's trying to show that he is in the right place. And I'll be honest, at first I thought Paul was only talking about like, hey, don't feel bad for me, it's going to be okay. But for a minute, I want you to consider this. I'm sure that they were concerned for Paul, but consider being a Gentile, one who did not have access to God. And now, through the message of Jesus Christ, we have reconciliation with God and do no longer have to become a Jew. Paul is our guy. He's the one that's fighting for us to help us understand, laying down the foundation to help everyone understand this mystery is now revealed. In Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile are one. He is the one that was commissioned to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles and enlighten everyone about this mystery. Now, Paul's in prison. What in the world, God? Why would you allow this to happen? I mean, think about what it would mean for Gentile Christians. Now you're fighting against those other Jewish Christians who say, no, 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 you probably have to become a Jew. 
where Paul has it been revealed to him that says, no, that's not true. In Jesus Christ, they do not need to become a Jew. They need Jesus Christ and him alone. We understand that this encouragement is actually meant to help them say, don't feel bad for me, but don't feel bad for yourselves either. This is all in the plan of God. He offers them comfort to these Gentile Christians. He's not only saying, don't feel bad for me, but don't feel bad for me, and don't feel bad for yourselves because of me being imprisoned. Think about 2 Timothy 2.10. Paul talks about being willing to endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. This is the thing that Paul is talking about here. This is a good exodus right here. Everybody enjoy. All right, here we go. This is the thing that Paul is talking about here. The glory that he's talking about is the glory that is shared because of Jesus Christ. I mean, what a great thought for us. I'm wrapping up here. Although we may have terrible circumstances, although it may seem like the work of God is stopped at certain times, although it may seem like our governments shut opportunities down and it looks dreadful for the sake of the gospel, although we may see persecution across the world, who is in charge? Do not be discouraged, brothers and sisters. This is the eternal purpose of God. It will not be thwarted by our governments and attitudes and struggles. He will complete this work. He has done so to this point, and he will continue all the way until he unifies all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus Christ. There's another thought for us, though. Not only is, should we trust God. That's the answer to that, right? Trust God. There's one more thing. In our longing and suffering and troubles and things that seem to go wrong, brothers and sisters, have patience in our God's work. It may not be to your liking or to your plan or to your schedule or to your agenda, but I guarantee it is to his. This is called a humble patience that waits on the Lord to do his work. Ever praying, ever asking with confidence that he would do these things, but never discouraged as though it's all over, but rather having full confidence that Jesus Christ will complete the work that he has begun. So brothers and sisters, I just say, wait patiently. This whole thing from the beginning all the way to the end has been about one major thing. Look at verse 8 again. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. This is all about God's blessing and work in his timing. I'd ask you, as, as we close out today, that you consider that Paul's entire description of himself and us as the church is the true grounds for humility. We have nothing. We have nothing in and of ourselves. It's all been us made <laughs> for the sake of Christ's glory. He shows us his grace and his alone. Who's, worldly, who's working to build the church? You? Me? No. It is God in Christ. Who shows the manifold wisdom of God? You? Me? No. It is through us that God shows the manifold wisdom of God. We are no more than a living display case for the grace of God to the universe. And so I'll end with this. All praise to God alone. All glory to him. He alone is worthy, for it is him who has always been at his eternal purpose to reveal his mystery, to bring together all things together in Christ. Let's pray together. Dear Father, I thank you for your great grace in Jesus Christ. 
We thank you for Paul who was willing to go to prison, to live a totally different life, to turn his back on all that he had done before and trust Jesus Christ. This is the gracious work that you did in him, the least of all the saints. Lord, we recognize that you are a gracious and good God and we ask you give us a humility. You give us patience that you'd give us an eye to see the wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God, and recognize that in the church, you are showing the heavenly beings what you are doing, as one day you will unify all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. We thank you for your great love, and we depend on you completely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.